This is the Humanist Report with Mike Figueredo. This podcast is sponsored by viewers like you on Patreon through PayPal donations with YouTube memberships and Twitch subscriptions. To support the show, go to patreon.com forward slash humanist report or become a member by clicking the join button underneath any one of our videos on YouTube. Members get early access to most videos and get to participate in monthly Zoom hangouts with Mike. Here's the biggest stories we talked about this week on The Humanist Report. Enjoy the show. Fulton County, Georgia's District Attorney Fannie Willis is expected to indict Trump this week. That would be his fourth indictment. Now, ahead of that likely announcement, Trump is already trying to encourage one of the potential witnesses in that case to not testify against him, which is bad because that is something known as witness tampering, which is illegal. Now, he's doing this, mind you, publicly on social media where all of us can see, including the prosecutor. He wrote the following message on Truth Social. I'm reading reports that failed former Lieutenant Governor of Georgia, Jeff Duncan, will be testifying before the Fulton County Grand Jury. He shouldn't. I barely know him, but he was, right from the beginning of this witch hunt, a nasty disaster for those looking into the election fraud that took place in Georgia. He refused having a special session to find out what went on, became very unpopular with Republicans. I refused to endorse him and fought the truth all the way. Yeah, so pretty shameless there. Now, if it wasn't already obvious enough that that was blatant witness tampering, well, legal experts confirmed, yeah, that is indeed exactly what it looks like. That's witness tampering. I mean, we shouldn't need their confirmation, but I mean, it's important still, right, for the layperson, I guess. So, for example, former U.S. Attorney Barb McQuaid says it's witness tampering in real time. Law professor and political scientist Anthony Michael Kreese called it blatantly unlawful. And all of us know that he is going to continue to do things like this because he's not going to go to jail. He's going to get away with it. Whereas if a normal person did that, we all know what would happen. They would be held in pretrial custody. So... This is what happens when you're an elite in this country, right? You can do anything, including tamper with witnesses out in the open, attack the judge, and um, you're going to be just fine. Now, he wasn't done tweeting about this potential fourth indictment because he also put out this message to the grand jury saying, quote, Would someone please tell the Fulton County grand jury that I did not tamper with the election? The people that tampered with it were the ones that rigged it. Now, he later says, I would be happy to show this info to the grand jury. Now, he's presumably referring to a report from CNN that the Fulton County District Attorney's Office has text messages and emails that tie him and his legal team to an unauthorized voting systems breach in coffee county georgia and of course we'll have to wait to see the indictment to confirm this but if it's true this is a massive bombshell because the rigging that he accused democrats of doing his team did like this is this is massive stuff here but need i remind you that trump was also indicted a third time recently as well and he's not done tweeting about that case as well because last week he attacked the judge overseeing that case and predictably he did the same exact thing again this week. He called her very biased and unfair on Truth Social in response to something that she told a January 6th insurrectionist. And he also tweeted a post where she's called, quote, an Obama left-wing activist judge in D.C. whose husband also got appointed by Obama as a D.C. judge, openly admitted she's running election interference against Trump. I mean, he is literally physically incapable of shutting the fuck up. And it is astonishing to me that not a single person in his circle is like, hey man, maybe let's not talk about the cases. But that's all he's tweeting about. He'll retweet some election stuff from time and again, but he keeps tweeting about his trials and attacking prosecutors, judges, tampering with witnesses. Now, he says this after that same judge who we just attacked warned him about engaging in this sort of behavior. She stated, quote, the more a party makes inflammatory statements about this case, which could taint the jury pool or intimidate potential witnesses, the greater the urgency will be that we proceed to trial to ensure a jury pool from which we can select an impartial jury. So he is quite literally making things worse for himself. And Newsweek adds, legal experts have now suggested that Trump may be spoken to by the judge over his latest social media postings. And I have to remind everyone that even if the judge talks to him about this, do you think that a normal person would only get a stern talking to? 
Of course not. And it's such a redundant point to make because I've said this a hundred times. Other people have pointed this out. You can see it. But it's so important that this fact is not lost on us. We are getting a real-time look at how our justice system treats elites, even when they brazenly break the law. Do any of us expect Trump to stop tweeting about his trials, to stop attacking witnesses or judges? Of course not. But at the same time that none of us expect his behavior to change, we also don't expect any action, right? Nobody's going to take him into custody. I would be shocked if that happened. But to echo what I said last week about this, everything that we're seeing is not taking place in a vacuum. This absolute lunatic is doing all of this and getting away with it. And at the same time, he is the leading contender for the Republican Party's 2024 presidential primary. That is so wild. It's not surprising, but it's still shocking when you step back and look at all of the details, even if we're normalized to it, right? The stronghold that he has on the Republican Party's voters, it just cannot be overstated. In fact, GOP strategists worry that if he somehow loses the nomination, which is unlikely, but if that happens, the entire Republican Party will suffer due to lower voter turnout among the GOP's base. And it's not just that a large portion of the GOP's base is going to be disillusioned if he loses. A good percentage of them might actually resort to violence. And Mehdi Hassan had a really important warning about this on MSNBC, and this aired yesterday, but uh, I'm gonna play a clip from it because it's very important. So what happens if Trump is convicted and sentenced to prison, especially this side of an election? What will his supporters do? My NBC News colleague Vaughn Hilliard asked one of them at a rally in New Hampshire on Tuesday. If Donald Trump were to be found guilty by a jury, <laughs> where, where, where do you see this going? Uh, civil war because we can't live together obviously now you might just dismiss that as the rantings of a cultish trump superfan just big talk this country's nowhere near a civil war that's hyperbole so have a listen to florida gop congressman matt gates speaking alongside trump himself at the iowa state fair yesterday i cannot stand these people that are destroying our country they're opening our borders they're weaponizing our federal law enforcement against patriotic americans who love this nation as we should we are having a great time at the fair we love standing with you but we know that only through force do we make any change in a corrupt town like washington dc only by force can we make change in dc that's what he said Still not enough for you? Then listen also to what Michigan Republican State Representative Matt Maddock, whose wife, Mee Sean, a former co-chair of the Michigan Republican Party and one of the 16 fake electors who was criminally charged last month. Listen to what he had to say earlier this month at a GOP fundraiser per an audio recording obtained by the news site The Messenger. If the government continues to weaponize these departments against conservatives and the, the, the citizens that are then the taxpayers, you know, what's going to happen to this country? Someone's going to get so pissed off they're going to shoot someone. That's what's going to happen. Or we're going to have a civil war or some sort of revolution. That, that's where this, is, where this is going. After that audio was released, Maddox issued this statement to the messenger, writing that he was simply exercising his right to free speech in the privacy of his own home. We've reached out to Maddox ourselves for comment, but have yet to hear back. Now, I don't know about you, but stuff like that sends a chill down my spine. Elected Republicans casually discussing, implicitly threatening civil war, shootings, the use of force. One recent study from Professor Robert Pape at the University of Chicago found that from April the 6th, 2023 to June 26, 2023, Americans agreeing that the use of force is justified to restore Donald Trump to the presidency increased from 4.5% to 7% or the equivalent of an estimated shift from 12 million to 18 million American adults. In a moment, I'll speak to Professor Barbara F. Walter from the University of California, who is an expert on civil conflict, author of the book How Civil Wars Start. She says we are closer to civil war than any of us would like to believe. Yeah. And this is because the base of just one of two major political parties that we have in this country 
has devolved into a full-blown cult. And the implications of this are absolutely horrifying. This political cult is tearing our country apart. And I'm not trying to suggest that everything was peachy keen before the rise of Trump, but he has been able to mobilize the GOP's already insane base in a way that's only comparable to some of the most influential demagogues in human history, literally. And even when Trump is out of the picture, this problem is not going to go away. We're going to have to grapple with the reality that a large portion of this country is that extreme, that unhinged, that detached from reality, that stupid, that self-centered, that hateful. And there are still a lot of people that have deluded themselves into thinking that you can win over a lot of these folks with economic policies or by calling them. But that's not going to happen. These people want retribution and economic policies that specifically benefit them isn't going to satiate their thirst for vengeance, right? They're out for blood. They feel angry. And Trump is somebody who is a vessel for their anger and nothing else can compare to that. So whenever we talk about Trump's trials and his blatant disregard for the law, we have to look at the broader context here and the way that his base responds to that, because he is either intentionally or unintentionally shoring up support by acting in this exact way, by attacking the judge, by witness tampering, right? And if he were to go to jail for witness tampering, not going to happen, but if that did happen, his supporters would rally around him and love him even more because that's what they've done in the past, right? So we have no reason to think there's going to be some straw that breaks the camel's back with regard to Donald Trump and his criminality. So in a twisted way, he actually has an incentive to act out in the way he has been. He's playing a game of chicken with prosecutors and the U.S. judicial system, and he's winning. They don't want to take him into pretrial custody and deal with the wrath of his supporters. So, of course, they're just going to let him get away with the same shit he's been getting away with. He's effectively able to hold the entire judicial system hostage, and he knows it, right? He loves this power. This is perhaps the quintessential case of absolute power corrupting absolutely. And it's going to continue to happen, right? If he's indicted again, which is likely going to happen this week, He's going to act out, he's going to do more witness tampering and attacking, and nothing will be done about it because he knows they're too afraid of his base to take action and take him into custody. It's historic any time a former president were to be indicted. Now it's the fourth time, this time over contesting the election in 2020. This is the first time I've ever been ashamed of my country. John Gotti never even had four indictments at once. Every time more bad news comes out about Hunter Biden or Joe Biden, you can set a stopwatch within hours. Some clown goes and indicts Donald Trump again. I don't think this would pass on a first year criminal law exam as a, an appropriate indictment. You're attacking a opposing candidate through the legal system. That's not how our legal system works. These cases, in my opinion, do not have any merit whatsoever. From all the four cases that have been charged for indictments, these cases are purely political. And under the Georgia law, there's a statute that limits the Republican governor's ability to pardon. And I think that the legislature in Georgia needs to amend that statute and give Governor Kemp the ability to pardon. Are we gonna let county prosecutors start prosecuting the president of the United States? States, the former president of the United States, you open up Pandora's box to the presidency. This is what is frustrating to people, to see them throwing everything at the wall, to see anything that might stick for Donald Trump, because they don't care in actuality how it is they prevent him from becoming president of the United States again. That is their end goal, and they will try everything as evidence now by this fourth ridiculous indictment. You hear that? That's the sound of inconsolable MAGA chuds sobbing uncontrollably across the country because, as you might have heard by now last night, Trump was predictably indicted for a fourth time along with 18 other people, including Rudy Giuliani, Mark Meadows, John Eastman, Jenna Ellis, and Sidney Powell, among others. Now, Trump specifically is indicted on 13 felony counts, bringing his combined total across four cases to 91 felony counts. Now, when it comes to the Georgia indictment, and Politico explains that Trump is being indicted for the following. 
one count of violating the state's Racketeer-Influenced and Corrupt Organizations Act, commonly known as RICO, six counts of making false statements and writings, filing false documents, or conspiring to do so, three counts of soliciting the violation of oath by a public officer, two counts of conspiring to commit first-degree forgery, one count of conspiring to impersonate a public officer. And the indictment itself is 98 pages long and incredibly thorough and detailed, and as I usually do, I will encourage you to read the entire thing. I'll link to it down below. But of course, I know many of you don't have time, so I'll also link to a summary by Politico. But before we move on and get to the reactions, which is what I know most of you are here for, uh, I think that I have to point this out here. This is one of the most important elements about this indictment, in my opinion. So if you go to page 20, where the acts of racketeering are described, Act 1 looks like a nail in Trump's coffin when it comes to proving criminal intent. Quote, on or about the fourth day of November 2020, Donald John Trump made a nationally televised speech falsely declaring victory in the 2020 presidential election. Approximately four days earlier, on or about October 31st of 2020, Donald Trump discussed a draft speech with unindicted co-conspirator Individual One, whose identity is known to the grand jury, that falsely declared victory and falsely claimed voter fraud. The speech was an overt act in furtherance of the conspiracy. In other words, before the election even took place, they were writing speeches where they planned to declare the election stolen. Yeah. How do you know that the election is stolen if it didn't even take place yet? I mean, obviously, this demonstrates that he's not just delusional about the election. His intent was criminal. He knew what he was doing. But in response to this indictment, he predictably attacked Fannie Willis and announced his plans to release, quote, a large, complex, detailed, but irrefutable report on the presidential election fraud, which took place in Georgia. And he's planning on doing this on Monday. And he adds, based on the results of this conclusive report, all charges should be dropped against me and others. There will be a complete exam exoneration. Sure, Jan. Now, Trump has 10 days to surrender for his arraignment, and thankfully, we might finally get what we've all wanted for a very long time. Because Fulton County Sheriff Pat Labatt told reporters this. We are following our part, our, our normal practices. And so it doesn't matter your status. We, we have mugshots ready for you. So we are finally going to get a mugshot, something that I've wanted since the first indictment. But apparently on indictment four, we're getting what we've all been asking for. And I swear to God, Pat, if you are lying, I'm going to be pissed. I want to see the mugshot. I want the memes to roll in. And I think that if you raise this expectation and you don't deliver, millions of Americans are going to be pissed. I think I speak for all of us collectively here. But moving on, uh, it feels like the response from the right this time is even more unhinged than usual. And I'm not sure if they were this unhinged last time and I just didn't notice it as much. But they were losing their shit over this indictment in particular. And I'm not going to pretend like that's not funny. I'm sorry. It is funny. The reactions are ridiculous. And I don't think it's bad that we make fun of them for this. For example, right-wing grifter Tim Pool has been tweeting through it. And in response to someone stupidly calling it Banana Republic stuff, Tim Pool says, actually, it's com it's communist revolution stuff. And after indictment three, he said this is a civil war. But he also reiterated that again, confirming that we are indeed in a civil war officially because of this indictment. But as Chad's of TikTok points out, this isn't necessarily a new thing for Tim Pool because he's been saying that we're in a civil war for four years now. So, I mean, I don't know if this is him being delusional or if it's just wishful thinking, but either way, it is absolutely maximum copium and it makes him look like an unhinged dipshit. But let's not forget about our good friend Ben Shapiro, who tweeted out, whatever you think of the Trump indictments, one thing is for certain. The glass has now been broken over and over again. Political opponents can be targeted by legal enemies. Running for office now carries the legal risk of going to jail on all sides. Now, to be fair to Ben Shabibo, he's not the first person to say this, but I love this tweet from him in particular because he gave all of us, in saying this, the opportunity to issue him with a clip from 2014 on Larry King Live where he said this. I'm not sure we could indict Washington, but I think that uh, certainly... I'm sure there, something was done. Uh, Washington was relatively clean, but if, but, if, but if you look at, at you know George W. Bush or if you looked at Bill Clinton or if you looked at Ronald Reagan, sure. I mean, the answer would be that, that you could, and, and people should be wary. I mean, this is, this is sort of the case that I'm making, is that we've become so comfortable with the executive branch of the government abusing its citizens and violating our rights and violating 
what they're structured to do under the law, that we've just become used to it. And, and if we start treating them as criminals, maybe they'll think twice before they act so criminally in the future. Mm hmm. Fast forward to today and Ben Shapiro is pretending like the indictments against Trump are illegitimate because he knows if he doesn't play along, his fascist viewers will skewer him. But Ben Shapiro is an attorney. He knows that Trump is guilty and that these indictments are indeed warranted and legitimate. But he has to pretend, which uh, is sad, but it's also hilarious and pathetic. Now, while we're on the subject of hypocrites, I'd be remiss to not look at Sean Hannity's response because he is predictably towing the line writing on Twitter, quote, they're taking away President Trump's First Amendment right to free speech and the right to challenge a rigged and stolen election. And look, nobody is saying that Trump can't challenge the election and even lie about it, but he can't actively try to overturn the election and disenfranchise millions of voters. I don't know how many times this point has to be said, but I'd imagine we're going to make be making this point over and over again because this is their go-to defense but it's bullshit and they know it's bullshit they are intentionally lying because there's no good defense for what trump did he tried to overturn a democratic election and they know that if obama or any democrat tried to do this we would never hear the end of it and that's not just speculation because here's what hannity said back in 2016 about the prospect of hillary clinton being sworn in as president while she was still under investigation so think about the magnitude of all of this for a second hillary clinton could be sworn into office while still being under investigation from the FBI, which would then put this country into a major constitutional crisis. Now, Clinton says Donald Trump, oh, he's not fit to serve in the Oval Office. But she, and she alone, has created a situation that could do severe damage to this country and the office of the presidency and prevent this country from solving problems. That means getting Americans back to work, fixing our broken educational system, fixing a broken healthcare system, fixing porous borders, vetting refugees. All of this needs to be done. Balancing a budget, stop robbing our kids. So that's what he said about the potential of a president being sworn in while under investigation. So you can imagine that a president who's been indicted four times being sworn in is much more problematic, right? Well, of course not. If you're asking, where's that energy for Donald Trump? Well, it's not going to be there and it never will be there because these people are hacks and it doesn't matter what their side does because by default, their side is always automatically correct and just and the other side is always automatically incorrect and unjust. There's no room for nuance or objectivity. It's just my team good, your team bad. Now, Jenna Ellis, who was also indicted, tweeted this. The Democrats and the Fulton County DA are criminalizing the practice of law, which is quite the take. But Dilbert creator Scott Adams chimed in and he pointed out that there are a lot of attorneys that are part of this indictment. And he wrote in response to that. How are all the lawyers in America feeling today? Safe? Now, what I love about this is not just how unhinged and stupid this is, but how others quickly chimed in and ratioed him. So one person wrote, the ones who know they're not criminals are feeling just fine. Another person says, yes, because we understand our ethical boundaries and the law. And like the rebel that he is, he retweeted this. When you can be indicted for saying there's election fraud, there's election fraud. And Scott Adams responded to that saying, I have not seen credible evidence of election fraud, but the bad guys are signaling it exists. And that, my friends, is some interesting logic. And I feel like you can't come to that conclusion unless you are a dumb fuck. And the reason why that's not a very compelling argument for those who don't already see it is because... If they actually believed that you could be indicted for simply saying that election fraud exists, they wouldn't be sharing that fucking image, don't you think? Who would go out of their way to get themselves in trouble just to, like, prove a, a fucking point? These people are so stupid. Reading their tweets and responses to this is making me feel like I'm crazy. But... This is all about a narrative, right? That's the narrative that they are pushing. And Liz Wheeler contributed to this saying, it's not just Trump they're coming after. They're coming next for our free speech if we dare dissent. Except again, how many people were arrested for simply questioning the election results? There are millions of Americans literally who think that Biden stole the election. They're not getting arrested. The ones who are getting arrested are the ones who took action and broke the law to overturn the 2020 election. Now, listen, when it comes to reactions, we can go on all day. But the point is, I haven't seen a single Republican objectively look at this indictment 
on its merit, right? They work backwards from the conclusion that Trump is good and always good. And even if they know deep down that this indictment is indeed legitimate, they simply can't bring themselves to admit that because they'll either be expelled from the movement or they have to grapple with the reality that they've been following a charlatan and that causes cognitive dissonance. So what we have in effect is a cult where they're all experiencing cognitive dissonance at best or psychosis at worst. And it doesn't matter how many indictments there are or how compelling the evidence is, because when you have politicians, mainstream media and right wing grifters validating this false reality that you've chosen to live in, the evidence doesn't have to matter because you can just choose to ignore it or deny it altogether in favor of a narrative that makes you feel more comfortable. Right. And it's sad that so many Americans choose feelings over facts, but if they're going to make us put up with this bullshit and force us to deal with this charlatan that is Donald Trump, then I don't think that we should feel guilty for laughing at their collective stupidity because it is indeed stupid. And if they're going to act like unhinged fools and choose to deny reality, then I think that normal people should make fun of them. Earlier this year, civil rights organizations like the NAACP and Equality Florida issued travel advisories to Americans considering a trip to Florida in the wake of anti-black and anti-LGBTQ plus policies that have been enacted by the state's Republican Party recently. Now, it's gotten so bad that some people who live in Florida have decided to leave the state permanently. For example, the McKee family explained to CNN that they're leaving because they feel like they have no choice because they have a trans daughter who they want to protect. We're absolutely moving because of the political climate and the laws in Florida. We didn't want to move. When the Florida Board of Medicine started meeting and we realized that they were going to ban gender affirming care for our kids, that we might need to leave because that is life saving essential medicine and treatment for our daughter. And that family is not alone because the UCLA Williams Institute spoke to 106 parents specifically about the state's don't say gay law and subsequent expansion. And this is what they found in response to that law, quote, 40 percent of the sample said they would like to move out of Florida, 20 percent very much so, and 19 percent somewhat. An additional 15 percent felt mixed about moving with 45 percent not wishing to move. Almost 11 percent said that they were very likely to move in the next two years with an additional 6% saying that this was somewhat likely. Barriers to leaving included jobs, extended family, and the hassle of moving. See, and that's the thing right there. Even if you want to move, it is very difficult to do so, especially if you don't have the resources. But even if you have money, leaving behind your friends and your family and having to find a new job, that's just something that most people don't want to have to do unless they feel like they absolutely have to. But regardless, 11% of parents said that they were very likely to move within the next two years, specifically because of the state's anti-queer policies. Now, that is not an insignificant number, right? And this is a small sample size, but still 11%. That's huge. And even though support for that law is largely partisan, even a small number of Republicans are saying that they're considering leaving the state as well. The Washington Examiner reports Abby Goldberg, the study's author, shared with the Washington Examiner that 53 percent of Democratic respondents had indicated that they had considered leaving the state, along with 40 percent of independents and 15 percent of Republicans. In contrast, 80 percent of Republicans said they have not considered leaving the state, along with 33 percent of Democrats and 40% of independents. And to be clear, the Washington Examiner is a right-wing rag. But if they're reporting these numbers and they're not trying to hide it, that goes to show you how bad the situation is in Florida, right? It doesn't make any member of the GOP look good. And any sane political party would take that as a sign that their policies have been a colossal failure. But not the GOP, because they're not a sane party. Because in response to this finding, the chair of the Florida Republican Party, Christian Zeigler, is essentially telling these families who are fleeing good riddance. So the Washington Examiner continues, 
Over 60% of voters support the actual language in the law, including 55% of Democrats. Christian Zeigler, the chairman of the Florida Republican Party, told the Washington Examiner. With that said, if a Democrat voter is passionate and perverted enough to support the sexualization of kids during school in grades as early as kindergarten, then I would agree that Florida is probably not the best fit for them. And I just want to remind you again, this is the chairman of the Florida State Republican Party. And what he says that these parents support the sexualization of kids, it's just kids finding out that queer people exist, that their teacher might be trans or gay. That's it. Nobody's trying to teach their children to be gay. That's that's not how it works, first of all. But that's not happening, right? And he's calling these families who are having to flee or wanting to flee perverted and accusing them of supporting the sexualization of children when he knows that that's not what they support. But there's a reason why so-called anti-groomer Republicans always resort to hyperbole and smears and never engage with the real criticisms. It's because their arguments only sound compelling if you lie to get people to support them and use straw man arguments against their opponents. But in response to this Williams Institute study making them look bad from a policy standpoint, he tried to spin this and went on the offensive against Democrats, sharing an interview that he did with CBS Miami, where he says that it's actually, quote, sane voters who are fleeing the Democratic Party. Oh, OK. And they're the ones hurting because they're, quote, vile support for indoctrination, sexualization and mutilation of our children. I don't know about you, but that sounds like cope to me. You know, if these families want to flee, let them flee. But really, who's being fleed from is the Democratic Party. Voters are fleeing from them. See, now he also uh, went on to argue in that clip that the Democratic Party is in shambles because they don't support the same draconian and fascistic policies that the Republican Party supports. And he's referring specifically to the state Democratic Party. But let's watch their problem is their radical agenda that they're trying to sell to Floridians, that Floridians aren't just rejecting, they are fleeing from. And you were seeing this mass exodus from the Democrat Party where people are registering as sometimes as independents, and then eventually they become Republicans or they're jumping right over to the Republican side because this is not the Democrat Party of their grandparents, of JFK. They don't even recognize it. A lot of Democrats don't even recognize their party today with just how radical it has become. Listen, I will never defend the Florida State Democratic Party because they are terrible. They're terrible for different reasons, but they just don't care about winning, it seems. Having said that, though, I mean, he's very obviously deflecting. I feel like everyone can see that. Imagine if the shoe were on the other foot. Imagine if a large percentage of residents in Florida were or wanted to flee the state as a direct result of the Democratic Party's policies. And to make matters worse, the leader of the state Democratic Party came out and said, well, good riddance, let them leave, they're perverts. Can you imagine what the GOP would say? They would endlessly blast those Democrats and rightfully so. But because the Republicans are the fascists who are driving Florida away, their only go-to method is to deflect since their position is draconian and indefensible. But ironically, as the state GOP chair bids good riddance to residents, the state itself and specific travel boards in the state are trying to advertise themselves as a safe place for LGBTQ plus people so they can keep breaking in that sweet tourist cash. Pink News explains a 60 second audio clip from Visit Orlando was broadcasted on iHeartRadio channels, including Pride Radio, reassuring listeners that the city is ready to welcome you just as you are. The possibilities are endless and there are amazing LGBTQ plus events for you to experience where everyone is welcome. The ad continues. NBC News journalist Ben Collins spotted the advertisements while listening to a podcast and wrote in a Thursday, August 10th tweet that the city was down so bad it's unbelievable. A similar event by by the Tourism Association from June, titled Orlando is Full of Pride, features a few of the city's LGBTQ plus residents speaking about why it is a safe place for queer people. One person who speaks in the video ad says, the way our city is set up, there are so many pockets of multicultural groups. The Florida city relies heavily on tourism due to its many theme parks, including Disney World and Universal Studios. Despite this, a report from Spectrum News found that tourism had decreased by 3.5% in the 12 months from April 2022 to April 2023. Yikes.
Now, there is a couple of caveats here. To be fair, specifically trying to attract queer tourists isn't necessarily a new phenomenon since cities have been trying to market to queer people as inclusive since before the travel advisories were put in place. And furthermore, you can't necessarily say that correlation equals causation. You know, you can't prove definitively that this small decrease in tourism is the direct result of these travel advisories or queer people and their allies choosing to not visit. But it's not unreasonable to deduce that it has something to do with it, right, given the current political climate. But nonetheless, we'll just have to wait and see if this trend continues because the state has reported high numbers in early 2023 and 2022 was a record year for tourism in Florida, but that came after the peak of the pandemic where they experienced record lows. But I mean, the expansion of the Don't Say Gay Law and adult gender-affirming care ban and bathroom bills didn't get codified until after that number was released where they said they're doing great. So, I mean, I don't know. We'll have to wait and see right uh we don't know for sure how this will affect tourism but i hope it does i hope it hurts them right because despite them trying to uh market to queer people the state's lawmakers have made it abundantly clear that you are not welcome in their state if you are a queer person or a queer ally right so by traveling there you are supporting their bigotry with your money right this is the bigotry capital of the country and their laws don't just affect floridians these laws are being exported to other states i mean how many more states have implemented a don't say gay law after florida did it right so they're leading the way in this crusade against lgbtq plus people so if you can don't go there i understand if you have family there and whatnot but i mean if you live in florida however and you don't have a choice then I mean, you have my deepest sympathies because if you are a queer person or just a good person, like it's not just about being gay or straight or trans or cis. If you're just a good person, you should want to get as far away from this hellhole as you possibly can. But I understand that that's easier said than done because, again, moving from your home is very, very difficult. But if you can choose to not travel there, then don't because this state doesn't deserve your money. Words cannot express how much I love that lady. That was the warm welcome that Ron DeSantis received when he showed up to campaign in Iowa. And honestly, at this point, I don't even know why he's bothering considering how poorly he's doing. He's actually losing ground to Donald Trump with a 27.7 point deficit to make up. And he could possibly be overtaken by Vivek Ramaswamy nationally soon if this trend continues. And to make matters even worse, in New Hampshire, an Emerson College poll finds that Chris Christie has actually passed him. It's only by a point, but he passed them nonetheless with Tim Scott right on his heels. And these shit poll numbers come after a late July campaign relaunch following concerns from donors that he just doesn't have what it takes to defeat Donald Trump. And I'm assuming that a relaunch entails a pivot away from nonstop woke bullshit and maybe a little bit of a focus on policy, possibly. But even when he tries to be serious and talk about policy, he can't not humiliate himself. So in a CNBC interview, he told Brian Sullivan that he actually supports a ban on congressional stock trading which is pleasantly surprising, right? Now, come to think of it, I think it's the only policy that he's talked about on the campaign trail. Maybe maybe he's mentioned other things, but this is like the one thing he said where woke wasn't in the sentence. And that's, that's shocking. It's almost uncharacteristic of him. And if he just stopped talking right there and just said, I support this period, 
then there'd be nothing left to discuss with regard to that particular policy he brought up. But the problem is he kept talking and he ended up saying this, quote, I was a congressman for three terms. He continues, I sold all my stock before I went in because I used to do day trading. Not that I had a lot of money, but I would do it. I just stopped doing it because the thing is, is if I traded something, someone will then say maybe some vote was there and I didn't even want the appearance of impropriety. Now, on its face, that sounds good. It sounds like he's been consistent and principled on this issue if we just took him at his word. The problem is, this is Ron DeSantis, and you should never take anything that he says at face value because, predictably, what he said there was a lie. And it's one that is very easily disprovable because Roll Call reports that it's true he did sell off most of his stock holdings, but the problem is that House disclosure forms show that he kept stock in U.S. Steel and Sirius XM. Now, I just don't understand why he chose to lie about something like this. Any journalist can look this up and verify whether or not you're telling the truth. So why give them the opportunity to make you look bad? If you just said that you support a ban on congressional stock trading, I think that most Americans would agree with you, including liberals and lefties. So why go out of your way to give people an opportunity to hand you this L? I just, I don't get it. Maybe he is uh, a masochist and he's a sucker for punishment. But that pales in comparison to another L that he took lately. And I'm, of course, referring to this idiotic feud with Disney. Because as Deadline reports, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis urged the Walt Disney Company to drop its lawsuit against him while telling CNBC that he has moved on from his battle with the company and that it should drop the lawsuit against him. Last call host Brian Sullivan asked DeSantis why he doesn't just pick up the phone and call Disney CEO Bob Iger to resolve the dispute. Quote, we've basically moved on, DeSantis said. They are suing the state of Florida. They are going to lose that lawsuit. So what I would say is, drop the lawsuit. You have the state that even CNBC ranks as number one of all 50 states for economy. But hang on a second. If you're so confident that you're going to win, then why would you choose to move on and then encourage them to drop the lawsuit? Why not take them to court, beat them and then you can tout that as a victory i mean as a politician don't you have an interest in saying i took on this woke corporation and i won why would you unilaterally disarm here it doesn't make sense it doesn't necessarily scream confidence if you ask me but for those unaware this feud started back when desantis tried to strip disney of their special status that gives them control over local taxes and bonding and desantis did this in direct response to them criticizing his don't say gay law and it's been a while since this story was uh, covered in the news so this washington post clip is going to catch us all up i mean they thought that they could create some type of development agreements that would essentially render everything that we did uh, uh, null and void and per put them in control in perpetuity uh, for this. Well, uh, that's not going to work. Uh, that's not going to fly. Whatever rationale there was 60 years ago uh, to do that, clearly now we're in a much different era as a state. Walt Disney himself oversaw the purchase of 49 square uh, miles in Central Florida used to be orange roads and swampland. His executives worked with the state legislature, who were so happy to have Disney in Florida, to create a special taxing district. They've had this special district since 1967. There are thousands of those in Florida. I live in a special taxing district. They usually take care of things like roads and parks, pretty simple stuff. For Disney, it was very different. They wanted to build this, this magic kingdom, which they did using their own rules and their own not having to worry about getting permits from local governments and red tape and bureaucracy. And it allowed Disney to grow and develop the way it wanted to. Worked out very well for Disney. Disney is suing for its specific allegations. Uh, they're saying that the state is punishing them for their free speech. And corporations are now considered to have the rights of citizens, right, ever since the uh, Supreme Court decision years ago. So Disney is using those rights as a citizen to say, we can speak, we can say whatever we want, and we shouldn't be punished by the government for doing that. Governor DeSantis has boasted about standing up to Disney. He's written about it in his book. He thinks that that's one of the reasons he was reelected, because he stood up against Disney. That last part was wild to me. He actually thinks that he was reelected for standing up to Disney. 
Turns out, though, that that's not the case since he's backing down. Now, to be clear, I don't think that corporations are people, nor do I think that they should get special treatment by states. But DeSantis's decision to go after them is not motivated by this desire to rein in corporate greed and corporate hegemony. It is motivated purely by them condemning him and his dumbass don't say gay law. So, I mean, as a leftist, this is one of those situations where I want to see them fight and I would want them both to lose in theory. But in this predicament, there's one loser, and that is very clearly Ron DeSantis. And remember, before he announced that he's moving on, earlier this year, he was humiliated by Disney when they outsmarted him using some old-ass clause from an old document from the 17th fucking century. So it makes sense that now he'd want to move on after they made him look like an idiot. But I'm not so sure that the company wants to move on because they've made it very clear that they're pretty fucking pissed off. Newsweek explains... Despite his claims to have moved on from the feud, DeSantis has frequently cited his conflict with Disney during his presidential campaign, at one point accusing the company of sexualizing children. Iger, speaking with CNBC in July, dismissed that accusation in strong terms. The last thing that I want for the company is for the company to be drawn into any culture wars, Iger said. We are a preeminent entertainer in the world, and we're proud of our track record there. The notion that Disney is in any way sexualizing children, quite frankly, is preposterous and and inaccurate. Iger also defended his company's lawsuit against the Florida government, arguing that Disney was within its right to speak out against the Don't Say Gay bill and said that DeSantis's reaction was not something that we could sit back and tolerate. Now, even if it's not true, I'm glad that Ron DeSantis said that Disney was trying to sexualize kids because it really exposes how conservatives will call anything sexualization and it makes their claims against LGBTQ plus people look that much more ridiculous if they're accusing Disney of sexualizing children. But to be clear, the company doesn't actually give a shit about Florida's homophobic laws, right? They were pressured to condemn the Don't Say Gay law after they took heat for their donations to the Florida Republican Party. In fact, they were accused of being complicit since they helped to bankroll the party that enacted that law and they condemned it to save face, right? But they're not woke. Remember, Bob Iger condemned striking actors and writers saying that their demands weren't realistic and that their demands were disturbing to him. So you are delusional if you think that this company cares about anything but their bottom line. The extent to which they care about politics begins and ends with taxes and regulations. And everything else is just window dressing. But Ron DeSantis thought that he could make an example out of this supposedly woke corporation. But as a capitalist, he forgot that corporations have all the power in our society. And this ended up blowing up in his face as everything does. But that's not the first thing to blow up in his face, and it certainly is not going to be the last thing to blow up in his face because Ron DeSantis is obviously a miserable piece of shit who lacks authenticity and only cares about getting more power. And there's a lot of narcissistic sociopaths in politics like DeSantis, but they all have to fake it to make it. Ron DeSantis, however, can't do that. He's not able to pull it off. And as a result, most Americans can see right through him. They see him for the fraud that he is. So, you know, it's, it's great to see him take L after L after L. I, for one, enjoy watching his downfall because this fascist failure is a win for humanity. This is Corey Tomzik. He's a Republican state lawmaker from Wisconsin, and this man could single-handedly take down an entire local news outlet all because they dared to publish a story about him that he did not like. So in August of 2021, the local outlet in question here is the Wausau Pilot and Review, and they published an article about a heated debate that broke out during a board meeting over a diversity resolution. Now, those opposed showed up to argue that it was un-American and Marxist and claimed that it was unnecessary because they They've never heard of anyone being discriminated against before, therefore this resolution wasn't needed. Now, at the time, he was just the local business owner and hadn't yet been elected to the state Senate, but he was one of the individuals who showed up to speak out against this resolution. Now, there were some teenagers that showed up to vocalize their support, and he allegedly called one of these teenagers a gay slur 
after they spoke in favor of the resolution. And that's what the Wausau reported about that he did not like. So on August 21st of 2021, the Wausau Pilot and Review wrote, Julian Brown, who last week asked the board to be supportive of the ideals that we practice in school, again asked the members to pass the resolution. Quote, I don't know how people can direct so much hate to such a resolution, Julian said. His mother, Nora Brown, who also spoke at the meeting, said her son, 13, and another speaker faced the slur at the executive committee meeting last week. Lisa Ort Sondergaard, who is a member of the county's Diversity Affairs Commission, witnessed the episode and said she heard a local businessman using the slur f this did not sit well with Christopher Wood, a vocal opponent of the proposal. Every once in a while, someone is going to be called a fag, Wood said. But we've got to get over it, Wood said, adding that in his view, freedom of speech was under attack. It was not clear whether he was referring to the freedom to call a 13-year-old a fag. So this grown man allegedly called a child the F slur, and then another grown man allegedly defended him, presumably by claiming that if he's not allowed to call said child the F slur, then his free speech is under attack if you criticize him. Sounds on brand for Republicans, right? Now, again, this is all alleged, so um, but there is evidence, which is why the newspaper decided to report on this. But Corey Tomzik, the man who's accused of saying this slur, uh, he was not happy with this reporting. And the New York Times explains, Mr. Tomzik, who is now a Republican state senator, denied using the slur and demanded a retraction. When the pilot and review stood by its article, Mr. Tomzik sued. Three additional people who attended the meeting later gave sworn statements that they had heard Mr. Tomzik use the word. And during a deposition, he admitted having said it on other occasions. In late April of 2023, a judge dismissed the lawsuit ruling that Mr. Tomzik had not met the legal standard for proving that the report defamed him. And get this, Mr. Tomzik has acknowledged using the word before. Court filings submitted by the Pilot and Review's lawyer, Brian Spann, quote Mr. Tomzik as saying in a deposition, I have a brother who is a gay guy, and I've certainly, out of joking and out of spite, called him a it more than once. Amazing defense for himself here. So let's just pause right there so I can give you some additional context. What we have here is what's known as a SLAP suit. Now, SLAP is an acronym that stands for Strategic Lawsuit Against Public Participation. And these types of lawsuits are used by wealthy people like him to shut down their critics, typically individuals with less money and power. Now, even if there's no legal merit to their claim of defamation and or damages, that doesn't matter because the goal itself is not to sue and successfully win. The lawsuit or even the threat of a lawsuit is used basically as a form of intimidation to get critics to shut up and getting them to be afraid of a lawsuit is the whole goal of this suit. They know they're not going to win, but they know that they might be able to bully people into silence if they threaten them with this frivolous lawsuit. Now, the problem with these lawsuits is that even if the defendants know that they didn't defame someone, just defending themselves could lead to them going bankrupt due to the legal fees, right? Even if they know that they're gonna win, if they try to defend themselves, then that's gonna be very, very costly. Now, as LGBTQ Nation reports, many states, but not Wisconsin, which, by the way, is where the newspaper is located, have anti-slap laws that prevent corporations and wealthy individuals from using the legal system to squelch free speech. Under such laws, journalists and others who have been sued can file a motion to dismiss a lawsuit if the case involves free speech. If the person suing can't show that they have a chance at winning, the suit is dismissed and they might have to pay attorney's fees for the defendant. And these anti-slap laws are crucial because it gives people with no money and power, journalists also, the ability to criticize those with more money and more power without the fear of getting hit with some bullshit lawsuit. And I'll link you to anti-slap scorecards so you can see whether or not your state has these protections in place. But in my state of Oregon and along the entire West Coast, basically, we have really strong protections against these types of suits, which is probably why Kim Iverson backed down after threatening me with a defamation suit after I published a video criticizing her that she didn't like. In states like mine, this sort of behavior is discouraged. Wealthy people can't use the law to silence critics because there are protections for us. But as you can see in Wisconsin, there's absolutely no protections whatsoever against slap suits. And it's been utterly devastating to the Wausau Pilot and Review because the judge, even though he dismissed Tom Zick's case, well, guess what? 
he can continue to wage lawfare against them by simply dragging out the case as long as possible. And even if it was dismissed, well, he has the right to appeal and drag it out even further. And guess what? That's exactly what he's doing. The New York Times continues, Mr. Tomzik has filed an appeal and the publication's founder and editor, Shireen Seward, said she has no idea how she can continue paying both her lawyers and her staff of four. Every time I open the mail, said Miss Seward, describing how she dreads finding a new bill, I want to throw up. Those dollars could be going to pay reporters for boots on the ground coverage, not paying legal fees for a lawsuit that appears designed to crush us, she added. They continue, the Wisconsin case, First Amendment experts warned shows how a single defamation suit can become a cudgel against the media in a way the law never intended. For small local news organizations, many of which are barely getting by financially, the suits threaten to put them out of business. That is the case with the pilot and review. Even though there is scant evidence that it reported anything false, let alone that it did so with actual malice, the long-established burden of proof that public officials like Mr. Tomzik must meet in a defamation case. And that last paragraph is really important because proving defamation in the court of law is very difficult to do. Even if you can prove that somebody said something about you that was false, proving malicious intent is a very, very high bar to reach. But it doesn't matter because this Republican, he knows that he can accomplish what he wants by simply dragging this out and that's what he's doing. His case was already dismissed and his appeal will be dismissed, but he knows that the longer he drags this out, the more money that they're going to have to pour into defending themselves, which accomplishes what he wants. It gets them to shut up. Since they wouldn't willingly shut up, he's trying to use the law to make them shut up, right? Now, this is a small four-person news outlet that was created in 2017, and they cover really important local news stories that impact the people of their communities, such as contaminated drinking water and whatnot. But they might literally be destroyed because of this man and his refusal to drop this frivolous lawsuit. Now, this slap suit has cost them $150,000. And when you go to their website, you can tell that they're hurting because their GoFundMe is one of the first things that you see. And even though they've raised $45,000, that's just a fraction of the money that they'll need to defend themselves. So I'm gonna link you to their GoFundMe down below. And if you can, throw them a couple of bucks because this is not okay. Corey Tomzik is using his wealth to silence his critics, and he also probably used his wealth to secure himself a seat in Wisconsin state legislature. And in the event an anti-slap law or bill, I should say, comes up, he's now in a position to where he can block it as a state senator. And by the way, he got elected running on uh, COVID restrictions and uh, stopping any mitigation measures against the pandemic. So. Yeah, kind of goes to show you who he is. If you look at his website, he's a very Trumpian Republican. He's an election denier like Donald Trump. And he has a lot in common with Trumpian Republicans who have also sued media outlets. For example, Trump tried to sue CNN, but that was dismissed. His lackey, Devin Nunes, tried to sue The Washington Post. That was dismissed. And we just learned that Mississippi's former governor is suing a local outlet after they reported on his comments about welfare fraud. So, I mean, these Republican tyrants... They claim to care about free speech and they denounce the supposed weaponization of our legal system when it comes to Donald Trump being indicted over his attempt to steal the 2020 election. But yet, what are they doing? They are continuously waging lawfare against their critics in a blatant attempt to get them to shut up, to get them to go away. But what happened to free speech? Like, it's it, it's not okay and it shouldn't be tolerated. But the problem is that this is not going to stop until we have national anti-slap protections in place. But until then, what we can do in the meantime is rally around outlets like the Wassell Pilot and Review so we can at least help them exist until this is addressed nationally. So consider supporting them on GoFundMe. It is almost 12.29. Any minute now, the big reveal crowd is big, ready to go. You just watched footage captured by journalist Steve Monticelli in November of 2021, and that large crowd that you saw was comprised of QAnon cult followers who gathered in Dallas, Texas to witness the return 
of JFK Jr., who would then announce a joint 2024 presidential run with Donald Trump and reveal that he's been alive this whole time. However, he never showed up because to the chagrin of these idiots, he actually did die all the way back in 1999. But the individual responsible for that particular lie is QAnon leader Michael Protzman. And as Vice News reports, when his prophecy didn't happen, Protzman's conspiracy simply changed. And over the next 18 months, he would alter and change his predictions to suit his needs and keep his followers on board. Ultimately, he claimed that he was in direct contact with former President Donald Trump and that Trump was, in fact, JFK Jr. in disguise. Sounds legit. Now, that individual, Michael Protzman, who spread that lie and continued to lie, died. Vaccine? Uh, no, but seriously, he died. He died on June 30th in a motocross accident, and his followers are taking it about as well as you'd expect. Vice News reports Shelly Mullinex, who was one of Protzman's earliest followers but had a falling out with him and other members of the group last year, remains convinced of the conspiracies Protzman concocted about JFK. She believes his death is all part of the plan. If that was the plan that God had for him, I know that everything is going to be revealed soon, Molnitz told Vice News on Wednesday. Molnitz said that in recent days, someone in her group claimed Protzman was taken out, but she dismissed that. She doesn't want any conspiracy theories, folks. Uh, she did, however, claim that the person who died was in fact one version of Michael Protzman, the evil version, and that the good Michael Protzman, who is in fact JFK Jr. in a mask, is still alive and well. Holy shit. Vice News spoke to several family members of Protzman's followers and all said that their loved ones have dismissed the news of Protzman's death as fake. In another Telegram channel populated with Protzman's followers, one admin wrote that they would be removing all posts regarding his death until we have absolute verification. Yeah. So as you can see, they had some very normal reactions to his death. Now, I hate to be the bearer of bad news, but um, here's your verification. It's the death certificate. He's gone. Don't shoot the messenger. He died. It's real. Now, I know that they're just going to say it's fake, but perhaps maybe that will give some of them some closure. But the reason why we're talking about this is not to discuss Protzman or his legacy, but really what happened after he died. And it's only been a little more than a month, but his death created this power vacuum, and one individual stepped up and tried to encourage his followers to follow them instead. But it doesn't necessarily seem like they are taking to that particular person. But unbeknownst to a lot of these individuals who want to be the new leader, well, before his death, he actually trained a successor. And that individual has since stepped up to take his place and his new followers or his old followers, I should say, have been receptive to this new leader. And that's troubling because this new leader is literally a 13 year old girl named Tiny Teflon. And as Vice News reports, according to multiple live chats on Telegram reviewed by Vice News, Protzman appears to have groomed the girl as his protege, hosting her on his live chats on Telegram, where he had tens of thousands of followers. As a sign of her growing position within the group, Tiny Teflon was made an administrator of Protzman's main Telegram channel, though she posted very little over the last six months. However, since his death, the teenager has reemerged as a leading voice in the group. In late July, she showed up at a Trump rally in Erie, Pennsylvania, where she was photographed with multiple members of the JFK group. Then she began to post again in the Negative 48 channel, as well as posting her decodes on August 1st. She shared a link to her new channel called ABC123. The channel's description says it will contain tiny Teflon's decodes, research, and much more. And in all caps, adds channel monitored by adult. The description doesn't mention who the adult is, but it is likely her mother, a Protzman devotee who has an account on Telegram as Teflon Dawn. Using this account, she has promoted her daughter's work as well as celebrating her birthday with a message posted in the main Negative 48 channel last year. During one live chat, Tiny Teflon went into more detail about how she would use her position to recruit more children into the cult. Great. Now, we're going to pause right there because it's one thing to make fun of the adults who believe this silly conspiracy, but when I see a child engage in this and participate in this, I just feel profound sadness for them. This 13-year-old girl is absolutely blameless, but her mother should feel terrible for brainwashing her daughter into this unhinged political cult, but she doesn't view it that way, right? As outsiders, we can see that this is 
her brainwashing her child and getting her to participate in a cult, but she sees this as her daughter just being brought into what she believes is the truth and the truest thing that she's ever encountered. And what makes matters even worse is that the adults who followed Protzman, as I referenced earlier, well, they're now following this child and they're encouraging her to be the new QAnon leader in place of Protzman. Vice continues, at the end of the chat, one of the listeners effusively praised Tiny Teflon, quote, I think you inspire many, many adults and children, so thank you very much. We appreciate you, love you so much, said one. Another added, it was a pleasure listening to you, and I hope my little girl can start listening to you and go from there. One listener responded to Tiny's plan about including more children, saying, I think that's awesome because my daughter will be watching you, so I'm sure we'll be following you. Seconds later, her daughter also spoke on the live chat thank you you did so good stuff and i definitely can't wait to hear more of you the girl said yeah so this is fucked up on so many levels i mean these kids are going to deal with lifelong trauma when they inevitably escape this cult and i feel really bad for them and i also feel bad for the family members of these cult members because this cult has ruined lives. Like as much as we make fun of the QAnon adherents and talk about how silly the things that they believe are, the sad part is that the people around them, I mean, they've been abandoned, right? These people abandoned their families, they've emptied out their bank accounts all in pursuit of this cult, and now they are following a literal child in pursuit of what they believe to be the truth, where they look at movies and pop culture and they try to decode it to get messages and create these prophecies. It's just... It's bizarre, but it's not a new phenomenon, and QAnon has been around since 2017. But Vice researcher David Gilbert explains how their popularity exploded, and spoiler alert, the pandemic had a lot to do with it. Everyone gets to be the hero, decoding all the new Q drops and comparing notes with their new Q friends. It kind of creates this community effect among believers. Uh, and that's why the pandemic was so key is because people were stuck at home, they couldn't meet people. So they were on Facebook meeting in all these groups of like-minded people and they felt, oh, QAnon is this community and they all solved the clues together and, you know, they're in on a secret that no one else knows about. It sort of reminds me of like the Da Vinci Code or National Treasure or these adventure movies where protagonists are able to see beyond I guess the like veil of reality to see clues and piece together something that everyone else wants to suppress. Yeah, absolutely. And that's that's how it has been structured by whoever is behind it, because they know that people are, you know, people want, I guess, excitement in their lives for want of a better word. So if they think that they're seeing beyond like what everyone else is seeing, that's exciting. They're in on the secret. So when you combine the thrill of discovering the truth with a real sense of community and you start to make friendships, then, I mean, you understand why Q cultists become so entrenched in this cult. It's like they're solving puzzles together or doing some sort of an escape room together, right? So it's sad and it's still going on, right? It doesn't matter that prophecy after prophecy did not come to fruition. They still believe it right? Because this has become a lifestyle to them. And so it doesn't matter if somebody makes a prediction based on the things that they've decoded and that doesn't bear out. What matters is that this is giving them a sense of identity and purpose. And because of that, it makes it that, that much more difficult to want to leave in the first place. Because if this is all you have, if you've driven away your family and this is your life, then you really have no incentive to leave. And it's just, you're kind of stuck in this hole that you've dug for yourself and getting out is impossible and you don't want to get out. So, I mean, yeah, what else can you say? QAnon is still around and at least one prominent subsection of this cult is now led by a 13-year-old child. Lord help us. Want more? Visit humanistreport.com for links to our full catalog of videos on YouTube, Means TV, and Facebook. You can also find audio versions of the show on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, iHeartRadio, and other major podcast platforms. And before you go, consider supporting the show on Patreon or through YouTube memberships. You'll get early access to most videos, invites to monthly live chats with Mike, and you'll be thanked by name at the start of the next episode. There are other ways to support the show. You can like, subscribe, turn on notifications, and share our content on social media. Thank you for watching.